0: Welcome to CTSNet To Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTS Net To Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about.
1: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the CTS Net uh, virtual roundtable on uh, COVID-19. We are going to be talking today about uh, managing to deliver specialist care whilst keeping ourselves safe. Um, And the various precautions that we need to take as um, clinicians who are exposed um, on the front line of delivering aerosolizing procedures. Um, So uh, I'm lucky to have with us uh, a esteemed panel today. Um, From a thoracic surgical perspective, we have Mr. Tom Routledge, who's a clinical lead for thoracic surgery um, at Guy's Hospital in London. Um, I have uh, Dr. Alberto Sandri, who's consultant surgeon at uh, the Ospedale San Luigi uh, Gonzaga Hospital in Turin. I hope I got that right. Um, yeah. And uh, from an ENT perspective, um, this is a very collaborative roundtable. Uh, we have Professor Nirmal Kumar, who is uh, president of ENT UK and a consultant ENT surgeon at uh, Writington Wigan and Lee NHS Foundation Trust. And then to um, just round off the table of uh, interspecialty collaboration, we have uh, Mr. Nigel Mercer, who is president of the Federation of Surgical Specialty Association and um, a consultant plastic surgeon and past president of the British Association of Plastic and Reconstructive Anesthetic Surgeons. So, thank you everybody for joining us. Um, I thought we'd start by just discussing the uh, general issues that um, have uh, arisen in managing thoracic surgical patients to start with. Um, and uh, those procedures that we would normally perform without any, any um, concern or any uh, second thought um, that now we have to really think about in more detail and make up a, a plan for. So perhaps we start with a, a UK perspective. Um, Mr. Rallis, do you want to start?
2: Sure. Um, So I guess our lines of thinking have been on a number of lines. Firstly, we're very aware that we are rendering our patients um, who are already elderly and comorbid and have cancer by removing a, a large part of their lung, we're rendering them probably extremely sensitive or susceptible to severe complications of viral pneumonia. So we are being much more careful about who we offer surgery to just simply on grounds of the the risk-benefit analysis has swung very much more towards the risk side. So we are restricting uh, surgery to those with bulky tubers who will not be well treated by radiotherapy and who really can't wait for surgery. Um, More comorbid patients uh, where the risk of surgery is dramatically higher, uh, we are perhaps advising against surgery and patients with early stage or indolent disease, we are advising to Uh, strongly consider either stereotactic radiotherapy or most of them are opting for a two or three month interval CT with a plan for deferred surgery after the viral surge, when it's probably going to be safer for them. And also more feasible from a logistic point of view, given our very limited uh, resource to offer elective cancer surgery at the moment. Um, The other side of the coin is obviously staff safety and the experience of colleagues uh, initially in Italy and now in Spain as well. Um, very clearly underlies the increased risk that healthcare workers face, probably because of higher viral uh, exposure, both repeated times and, and higher overall dose per exposure. Um, and we are um, adjusting our practice accordingly. Um, obviously, uh, FFP3 and full face protection is critical throughout the procedure, even relatively minor procedures, chest drain insertion and such. Um, Uh, And things like uh, bronchoscopy, which we normally wouldn't have thought twice about, we are cutting back a lot, both uh, awake, no flexible bronch, and and also um, uh, bronchoscopic surgery, which for us usually means um, palliation of advanced malignant disease. Um, Clearly, there's a huge risk to staff involved in uh, airway stenting or airway laser procedures. And the benefit to patients in an environment where they can't really get any critical care, perioperative support, um, where they're unlikely to get any other anti-cancer treatment other than possibly palliative radiotherapy is not clear. So um, uh, we previously have had quite a big workload of um, palliative lower airway surgery, which we've cut right back on for that reason. And Prof Nermal, thank you.
1: Thank you, uh, Mr. Um, Prof Namel, can you, least a little bit about what um, ENT has been doing in this in this field because I know you guys have kind of came at the forefront of it very early on and have um, formulated some some guidelines.
3: Yes, thank you for that. And that was a good summary uh, from um, the thoracic perspective in the UK. ENT don't come from that kind of very heavy surgical practice uh, generally in terms of the um, kind of airway, uh, but our main concern recently in this pandemic has been relatively simple procedures such as nasal endoscopy for example or laryngoscopy and even from those and we'll be interested to hear the italian perspective even from those and as tom said there may be a low but sustained exposure of um, clinicians and healthcare workers uh, from these aerosols so that's one big uh, sort of uh, area of concern for us of course the Second uh, aspect is the nasal um, procedures, the surgical procedures on our airway that we, again, did very often for routine clinical conditions such as chronic rhinosinusitis and some tumors. The number of cancers that we did in the nose and the upper airway and perhaps in the larynx is certainly not in volume terms as much as the benign work that uh, we do. But um, it seems surprisingly, that the biggest area of concern for us is in the more high volume, but more routine rather mundane procedures that we have been um, doing all this time without you know, giving it a second thought and now have to completely stop and reconsider uh, because these uh, aerosol generating procedures are so, so uh, dangerous. And it's obviously being shown in Italy and in other countries but we have also sadly seen that in the UK. And we are in correspondence with Public Health England. I must say, they have been very forthcoming in including upper airway EMT procedures as aerosol generating because in the current guidance, it doesn't state that uh, bronchoscopy is there, but not uh, anything else in the upper airway. And that's an area of concern. And as Nigel knows, Mr. Mercer knows, we have waited this week for the final recommendations from uh, Public Health England, but they are not yet available. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, just before I came on air with y'all on this uh, meeting, I've been contacted by two European societies, Northern European societies, Norwegian and one more, who say, come on, we are following your lines in terms of what you are saying in the UK, but when is Public Health England going to follow? So if there is some good outcome uh, it is to get Public Health England to recognize the importance of this.
2: From a societal perspective I think what's become very clear to me and my colleagues is that the larger bodies whether they're professional associations or Public Health England or you know or supranational organizations are not sufficiently agile for their advice to keep up with the rapidly evolving situation. So we've taken the situation into our own hands as Coalface face uh, specialty doctors, and are making our own judgments about risk and our own operational decisions to keep our staff and our patients safe. Because they, you know, the formalized you know, multi-committee political based
3: guidelines are just, they're coming out too slowly and they're too out of date. Absolutely right. And this is what I'm now giving my number freely to every uh, hospital and consultant ENT service who wants to contact me, because I'm saying exactly that. We can't wait for more people to die
0: before we actually get this done.
4: Major. I guess muted. Sorry. So, just to back up what Tom and um, Normal and have just said, the um, I've spoken to Derek Alderson, the, Col- the President of the College of Surgeons of England. We are agreed that in the absence of PHE coming out, and we think it might be tonight. Um, but it probably is going to be very generic. That anyone who's working in an operating theatre should be wearing FFP three or two, at the very least, and take full, full other um, uh, PPE precautions if they're in that environment. And uh, and that that is our advice. And I think we'll, we will stick to that.
1: Alberto, do you is this something that you saw in the early days of um, the virus hitting hitting the north of Italy? Was there clear guidance from your authorities?
5: Well, no, we didn't have clear guidance as uh, thoracic surgeons. Um, Of course, there are indications given from our higher Institute of Health and uh, the WHO regarding how to uh, treat uh, patients with all the PPEs necessary, and that's what we're doing, we're strictly following those rules. Uh, Of course, as everyone is saying, uh, easy uh, things which we do in our normal practice, like even uh, inserting a chest drain in a patient with a pneumothorax uh, is becoming really difficult and really dangerous for for us and for the patients. So this was probably something which was not so clear in the very beginning of the pandemic in, uh, in February and beginning of March. Um, probably um, this was you know um, I would say uh, under um, estimated from all of us Um, and we had yes uh, several actions taken but too late probably and if we had more clear indications from um, our societies and uh, the higher Institute of Health Italy then probably um, we would have uh, you know, had a better approach to the patient and providing a better service, and infecting less people. Because uh, unfortunately, many of us in the very beginning uh, didn't have these protections and got infected, transmitted the infection to patients uh, without knowing because they were probably asymptomatic. So this uh, this is one of the problems we we faced in the very beginning.
1: Thank you. And to take some specific examples, we were talking about um, uh, nasal bron- nasal endoscopy. Um, Prof, Nama, you mentioned um, that low dose exposure in, in clinics and such like, whilst there have been recommendations as to the use of PPE in the operating theatre, a lot of these procedures are performed outside of that setting. Um, and so I just wondered how have you just stop doing those procedures in clinic for the time being? Have you, how have you dealt with that? Can you hear me?
5: Hello, uh, just oh, uh, Sorry, yeah. sorry,
1: um, Prof. Nema, how have you been dealing with the uh, nasal endoscopy side of things in clinics um, in a non-operative theater environment? Uh,
3: Thank you, I I didn't realize this was for me. Yes, uh, absolutely. Today um, I did a uh, suspected cancer clinic, but we really triaged every single patient uh, this morning that I was meant to see. And I would have done about 20% of the patients I would normally done endoscopy on. And perhaps the only outcome from this uh, pandemic will be that we will treat every such procedure with great respect in future. But anyway, that's for later. But for now, today, I really, we have uh, changed practice almost uh, overnight because of these risks. And uh, we are now looking at each and every endoscopy. Does it have to be done? Um, is it something that will um, be, be uh, either urgent or life-saving? And today, out of the 10 patients that I saw this morning, I did the endoscopy only in two, both were in significant cancers and wearing uh, the full protective equipment um, that I was, uh, uh, you know, fortunately had access to. Um, and I think it's got to be a senior decision. And I'm telling this to all my clinicians in the frontline trainees, uh, if they do any simple thing, even an endoscopy or a, a drainage of a quinsy, uh, that they need to wear FP3 and not uh, take that lightly. Or a treatment of epistaxis. So if you've got a whole range of things that we, as you rightly say, we used to do in casual settings in the outpatient clinic, in uh, treatment rooms, but we are now deeming each of these to be high risk areas, high risk acute areas. And um, as Nigel said in the public health guidance, hopefully that will clarify and we will do it uh, with appropriate protection.
2: I think your point about um, senior decision making is important and one way to keep our staff and our junior staff safe is to the, the low level things that we would all have had our junior staff do without any involvement from us often. I think all of those decisions now need to be made at a very senior level to ensure that we are only doing critically important aerosolising procedures. And as you say, I've sat in enough meetings with our in-house EMT team, and their experience is the same is that their current practice is to do a tiny fraction of uh, of the kind of uh, office procedures that EMT surgeons do so many of, um, you know, reducing it really, to the ones that are critical, even changing practices of how they're draining quinsies to try to treat more of them with antibiotics, um, at least initially, to, to really minimize the number of uh, high-risk procedures that are being done. So in mm-hmm. thoracic surgery, our, our treatment, you know, we have a high volume uh, practice in treating elective um, pneumothoraces and low-level empyemas, and we've moved almost completely to a, a non-operative treatment of, of these conditions, at least for now. It may be a somewhat uh, less effective treatment, but the, you know the, the price of, of massive staff exposure and also using up hospital resource enormously yeah. um, you know has to be borne into consideration,
1: yeah. do you want to um, from a, a thoracic surgical perspective, the question of ambulatory chest drains and um, people going home with Portex bags or people in the community with vortex bags, drain removals in clinic that kind of thing, how are you guys dealing with that
2: so um Chest drains generally are an interesting topic for us. I've had some correspondence with Medela who make the Topaz digital drains that are widely used in thoracic units across Europe. They have a little electrical pump that sucks air out of the patient, pulls it through a filter, um, and then exhausts it through the back of the the drain. Um, The filter is rated as a bacterial filter. It's not rated as a viral filter. Um, Medela are very keen to imply that their drains are probably the safest option currently for inpatient and potentially outpatient use. Um, But I'm not convinced. Our take at the moment is probably the safest option for all concerned is a a straightforward underwater seal but connected to wall suction um, so that um, there is no evacuated uh, air, which presumably is rich in virus being blasted into the patient's immediate bedside area. I'm not fully clear what happens to the air to the air when it goes into a hospital wall suction unit whether you know whether it you know I don't know whether it just shoots out of the side of the hospital or whether it's in any way treated before that happens I've asked our, our, our works department to clarify that but at least it's not spraying around the ward um, so our view on inpatient drains at the moment is that probably the safest thing is to have them connected to hospital wall suction so it's a closed circuit um, uh, uh, other people believe that the digital drains are safer at the moment. I'm, I'm really not convinced that that's the case. Um, what is clear is that uh, valved chest drain bags are, are really not safe. Um, it's fine in a patient's own home, but uh, in a hospital ward or even, you know, traveling back home, uh, that seems like a, a dangerous option.
5: May I just add on to to uh, our chest drains in Italy? We we use um, a water seal drain. Of course, we have Thorpes uh in our ward, and uh, I, I believe those are the safest ones. But still, we do not know whether the filter—I mean, the they filter works with, with 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 the virus or not. However, we use these water seal uh, drainage systems, which do have actually i mean they are a closed uh, drain but still some air comes out of the drainage system so unfortunately we had to uh, think of something uh, homemade in order to uh, protect the uh, the system itself and avoiding uh, the spread of uh, this Air coming out from the chest of the affected patient. So we just wrap them around uh, some plastic, transparent plastic bags, and uh, tape them to the tube. I know it's silly to, to look at it, but it's uh, it's cheap, it's cost effective, and it works. Um, that was one of our main concerns here, in especially in our ICUs.
2: Alberto, can I ask? Um, have you seen a lot of pneumothorax related to the ARDS from viral pneumonia?
5: Yes, we did. We, um, I can count at least uh, four of them, which, uh, we, which needed a drain. And uh, we had three cases uh, of uh, uh which we cannot relate to uh, just a positive pressure like CPAP. Uh, because some have some papers have been published on this as well. Uh, I think it's related to the uh, viral um, problem itself. Um, we had to drain patients, of course, and uh, that's a nightmare. You have to dress up with all the PPs possible and available. Take care. And as you said earlier on, um, these procedures, although they are very basic in our daily practice. Uh, need to be rethought, and our uh, you, junior fellows and residents are not allowed to 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 do those procedures in order to avoid complications in order to uh, preserve as many uh, PPEs as possible since we are in shortage of them and uh, one more um, protocol which we added on after chest drain is that especially in intubated patients that we don't pull out the drain until the patient is extubated. This is something which may sound odd sometimes because you know the 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 lung may be expanded and there's no air leak uh, after three four days of suction but still we don't want to risk a re-drainage which already happened once uh, in the very beginning in such patients. Uh, This obviously in uh, taking care of the PPEs available, and uh, it's it's something which we thought would improve our practice.
2: That sounds very sensible to me.
5: Another area
2: of uh, ITU chest-drain practice that we've seen a bit of, and sadly anticipate seeing a lot more of, is intubation-related major airway injury. Um, Really, intubation has been carried out under challenging circumstances in huge numbers. Uh, by teams wearing unfamiliar kit and probably increasingly um, in the UK by as things get bad um, by teams who are perhaps less experienced. And we've already seen um, two or three major tracheal lacerations from intubation in southeast London over the last uh, few days. And so we're drawing up a uh, a non-operative protocol uh, Mm -hmm. our ITU colleagues manage these in the first instance essentially bilateral chest strains and um, advancing the endotracheal tube as far as possible um, so that you're distal to the injury. Normally, we would do that under bronchoscopic guidance, but given the concerns about bronchoscopy, we're going to advise blind advancement of the endotracheal tube um, and then checking its position with the chest. X-ray not sure it hasn't gone too far in. Um, but sadly, I, I suspect we'll see a reasonable number of major airway injuries. Yeah.
5: We had, we, we had one in our hospital and one referral from another hospital. And we dealt with it uh, in the same way you did.
1: Um... Moving on from that side of things, I had another cross specialty issue, I guess, is that of tracheostomies. Um, two, two specific points. One, the first being tracheostomy in COVID positive patients. So, COVID positive patients who've been on a ventilator for a long time, from a ventilatory weaning perspective, I know it's something that's been discussed that probably isn't happening very much. And then the second point is, those patients who have trachees, who have tracheostomas, maybe mature stomas that are long-standing. how we manage those patients in the outpatient and the inpatient environment. So maybe Prof. Nermar, if you want to take that? Yeah,
3: yeah. Thank you. It is certainly at the forefront of our mind, the very uh, point that you, the first one that you uh, just raised. Um, and I'd be interested to hear the Italian perspective, but we, uh, quite early on, uh, ENT UK have been very active in drawing up Guidelines which um, we have put up on our website and circulated to our members. And we are very conscious that, first of all, tracheostomy is a high risk. That was already there in the old PHE guidelines. Um, But the timing is something that is increasingly uh, of concern Um, because the standard teaching, of course, we have all practiced in the past was to do it fairly soon uh, to help in the weaning. But there is a concern from many colleagues around the country that. we shouldn't do this too soon. Uh, really interested in, to hear the Italian uh, view on that. And, and today, a group of us who wrote the first, uh, who wrote the first draft of our tracheostomy guidelines for COVID positive patients, we are going to revise it because we are getting pressure from intensive in um, ICUs around the country to do this uh, fairly soon. Our view is, and um, the group has not yet finalized. We need to consider percutaneous tracheostomies in the first instance, um, and then open surgical tracheostomies only if that is not uh, possible for whatever reason. So that's the first one, timing-wise. Um, certainly not the old timing uh, in terms of the um, uh, you know how soon we do it. Um, shall I invite uh, the Italian um, perspective on that in terms of the? Uh, timing before
2: I answer your second one. Alberto, have you have you have you been involved in uh, tracheostomy care in Italy or are you aware of what the what the policies well, be right now?
3: No,
5: unfortunately we um we don't do them. It's not a procedure uh, um, that we, we do on a daily basis. Uh, it's the ENTs doing it. And, um, well, I don't have any experience in in that right now, so I I can't tell you that.
3: Okay, Um, I think, uh, yes, timing wise, it is something that we will have to uh, sort of uh, consider carefully and the uh, feeling is not too soon. Uh, And the old stories about, uh, you know, um, causing subglottic stenosis and problems like that, perhaps don't uh, hold good. Um, And sorry, what was your second one, Lianne?
1: so from a second perspective, the, those patients with existing tracheostomies? The man, yeah,
3: the management, yes. That is certainly uh, an area that we will um, need to consider carefully because managing these patients, even changing a tracheostomy tube, uh, if they have had a laryngectomy to change their speaking valves, all these are, I'm going to, we uh, are classifying as aerosol generating procedures and therefore we will need to where the appropriate protective equipment and even changing a tube um, need not happen unless it was absolutely essential and our uh, protocols are being sort of looked at very carefully. We have obviously not yet come to the stage where for the COVID positive patients we have not done too many tracheostomies. Um, Only today I was sent in my neighboring hospital their first COVID positive tracheostomy and how they managed it they put a little uh, set of recommendations which i'm going to circulate um in london perhaps uh, you may know tom uh, how, how yes, mean, I've, uh
2: how... I've certainly sat in discussions i share a directorate with our ent surgeon so i've sat in on a lot of their discussions um again the view is tracheostomy should be deferred as long as possible if it's for respiratory weaning on the tail end of an ARDS process, the hope is that many of these patients may have become virus negative or at least much lower viral load if you leave it as long as possible. Um, There is a, obviously there's a lot of concern about carrying out the procedure itself, but actually it's felt that that can be done fairly safely as long as you essentially make the patient apneic for the entire period, which again means somebody needs to be well down the recovery pathway so they can tolerate periods of apnea um, so you're not blasting contaminated air into the operator's face. A, a major concern in London, if we are too, um, uh, too generous with the number of patients we tracheostomise is that tracheostomy care nurses will be a critically short um, resource. Um, you know, you can set an ENT team around, you know, putting in hundreds of tracheostomies here, there and everywhere, but if there are no specialist nurses on the step downwards to look after them, then, then that's a, a really big problem. So we are trying to upskill other nurses in basics of tracheostomy care, but I think you're right. I think the key is leaving tracheostomy insertion as late as possible and doing it in as few patients as, as possible, and not reaching for that as a procedure as early in the respiratory recovery pathway as you normally would.
3: Yeah.
4: yeah. Can I can ask a question on that. So what's clearly happening here is there's very significant changes in practice, both from the intensivist point of view and from the surgical point of view. And uh, the, the, the bit that Tom mentioned about, about rendering the patient apneic, I hadn't thought about, you know, I, I, nor would I. That type of information, which you have obviously learned from Italy and from uh, Wuhan through, through harsh experience, how is that sort of information being promulgated around the thoracic and ENT and the intensive, intensive community? Because hopefully it is.
2: I, at the moment for, for me it's uh, operationally within our own hospital and with our own teams. Um, uh, ENT UK I think probably have, have been a bit better and more centralised approach um, than the UK thoracic community and I, I know that even within London there is quite a lot of varying practice and varying awareness of the risks involved.
4: Um, one of the things the FSSA has is that we have a close link with the association of anaesthetists so we can we can promulgate information like that extremely easily as so it's agreed by the specialty societies that are involved so that's just an offer, we can, that's something we can do very easily. I
2: think, that's, I think EMT have been very good uh, for tragic reasons the risks were highlighted to that community very early on. I, I think the thoracic surgical community have been more varied in their um, Uh, appreciation of these factors and and I think some help in agreeing and disseminating uh, an awareness of risks and and how to change practice would be very helpful. Thank you. Thank you.
1: That was part one um, and thank you. We'll be back with part two shortly. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to CTS Net To Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSnet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSnet Video, by following at ctsnet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSnet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net To Go. Have a great day.